And could you also keep your Bible open at that chapter which we just heard read, Matthew chapter 4, which is on page 964 of your church Bibles. Uh, And also, please may I ask you to keep your Bible uh, open as well at Isaiah chapter 9. So you can put your bulletin in there or or something just to hold the place. Uh, That's on page 685. Uh, That was our Old Testament lesson. So if you could keep something there, because I'll be referring to it later. Okay, brothers and sisters, I will pray uh, as we study God's word together. Let's pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, sisters and brothers, today we are continuing our study of Matthew. And in the past few weeks, we have learned that Matthew has two big things to say. There are two main ideas that are front and center of his narrative, two key points that he wants us to know. And they are this. One, Jesus' identity, that is who Jesus is. And two, Jesus' mission what Jesus came to do. So to put it another way, Matthew has really been answering the questions, who is Jesus and what has Jesus come to do? And so far, we've seen him answer those questions in a variety of ways. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the son of Abraham. He is the one who reverses God's curse upon sin. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the son of David. He is the one who restores God's rule. Who is Jesus? Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He himself is God, and he is the one through whom God is with his people and delivers them. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the new, restored, and perfect Israel. He is the one who has passed through the waters of the River Jordan and has been tempted by Satan and has endured obedient and has stood triumphant. Who again is Jesus? Well, Jesus is the spirit-anointed servant, uh, the one to whom heaven itself is torn open and the Father declares, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Finally, who is Jesus? Well, Matthew tells us that that Jesus is named Jesus because it means that Yahweh saves. Jesus is Yahweh himself who has come to save his people from their sin. And my point is this. As we reach this passage in Matthew, uh, as we're drawing to the conclusion of this section, as we're just about to enter the Sermon on the Mount... Matthew is not stopping with those two points. He keeps going. He still wants us to know who Jesus is and what he has come to do. But in today's passage, I think he's also pushing us beyond that. And he is now challenging us as readers to respond to Jesus and to follow him. In other words, 
now that we know who Jesus is, and now that we know what he has come to do, Matthew wants us to know the necessity of following this Jesus. And so if you want to know the big point of my sermon, the big point I think this passage is teaching, then it's this, this sentence. Because of who Jesus is, and because of what Jesus has done, it is necessary for us to follow Jesus and to make followers of Jesus. All right, I'll repeat that. Because of who Jesus is, and because of what Jesus has done, it is necessary for us to follow Jesus and to make followers of Jesus. And so the sermon is just going to progress in those three basic steps. It's going to be along those lines, right? Who is Jesus? What has he done again? And what does it look like? to follow him. So that's what we're going to do. So the first point again, who is Jesus? And we now need to look at our passage. We need to look at Matthew chapter 4. So have a look at that with me, beginning at verse, uh, verse 12. Matthew 4 verse 12. Now, when we look here, the first thing that we learn is that Jesus has moved location. He's now in a different place. Uh, we are told, verse 12, that he withdrew into Galilee. Now, that seems like it's not very important, but actually, this is the fourth time, it's the fourth time that Matthew has drawn our attention to Jesus' location, to where he is. Matthew told us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that his parents brought him to Egypt, that years later his parents brought him out of Egypt and settled in the town of Nazareth. And in each case, there, there was a practical reason why Jesus was there. He was born in Bethlehem because of the census of Quirinius. Uh, he was brought to Egypt to escape the slaughter of Herod. Uh, his parents settled in Nazareth to avoid the grip of Herod's son. Uh, and here in this case, the practical reason was that, verse 12, John had been arrested. In other words, we're told again that it was dangerous for Jesus to remain where he was. Once again, the rulers and the authorities of this world uh, were a threat to him, as they were before he was even born. And so, therefore, he decided to withdraw. But that's not a wholly adequate explanation. That doesn't interpret everything quite fully. And more importantly, it doesn't understand history the way the Bible tells us to understand history and the way Matthew understands history. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago, I made a point in a sermon about how it is we interpret events in the Bible, how it is we understand them. And my point was this, right? The works of God are interpreted by the Word of God, right? The works of God are interpreted by the Word of God. What God does is only understood in the light of what God says. 
And that's a point that Matthew makes repeatedly again and again and again. Matthew keeps telling us that whatever happened to Jesus happened to fulfill the word of God. So if we were to ask Matthew the question, why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Why was he taken to Egypt? Why did he settle in Nazareth? Matthew would say, ultimately, to fulfill the word of God. For Micah said that out of Bethlehem shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Hosea said that out of Egypt God would call his son. And the prophets together as one said that this son should be called a Nazarene. And here in this passage, it's exactly the same. It's the same principle at work. Just have a look at verse 14. Look at that, verse 14. And I'll just read the verse before. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Right? So that what was spoken by Isaiah might be fulfilled. And so therefore, the question that we really ought to be asking is this. What did Isaiah say? What did Isaiah mean? And how is it fulfilled by Jesus? Do you understand? What, what did Isaiah say? What did he mean? And how is it fulfilled by Jesus? And, and that's exactly what we're going to do right now. That's exactly what we're going to look at. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. That's on page 685. And we're going to look at what Isaiah says so that we can understand what happened with Jesus. So Isaiah 9. Now just... Before we actually look at those verses, I want to draw your attention. There, there are three, three points of context that we need to understand this, right? Very three short sentences, okay? Number one, Israel at this point in time has broken the covenant, right? They've fallen away from God. They've disobeyed him. They've rejected him. They've turned away from him. They have broken faith with God. Two, because of this, God has sent Isaiah to tell Israel that judgment was coming. To tell them that all of the curses of covenant disobedience were imminent. To tell them that they were about to go into exile. They were going to face the full punishment for violating the covenant. That's two. And the third... Isaiah also looks beyond this fact. He, he looks beyond the exile, and he anticipates that there will be a return from exile, that there will be a renewal of God's blessing, that there will be a restoration of Israel's fortune, that once where God imposed his curse and punishment, that one day he would restore them and bless them. And it's that last point which is critical for this chapter here. So just have a look down with me. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. Right? Just as God had shattered and scattered his people in exile, 
Yet God says that he would multiply the nation and increase its joy. Or verse 4, just as God had imposed foreign rule, that he had put upon them the yoke of oppression uh, and the rod of oppression, yet God says in verse 4 that he would break both. He would break the yoke and he would break the rod. Or verse 5, just as God had delivered Israel into the hands of their enemies, into violence and captivity and war, in verse 5, God says he would destroy the garments of battle and put an end to war. This is what it means for the people who have dwelt in darkness under the shadow of God's punishment to have seen a great light. This is a picture of restoration and renewal. It's a picture of God reversing the exile and taking away the punishment that he had imposed. And what Isaiah says is that the way God would do that, the way he would reverse the exile, the way he would bless the people, the way he would take away his curse, the way he would shine his light to people in darkness is verse 6, through a son. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But Isaiah tells us, astonishingly, that this son, the one true son of David, the Messiah, the one who would restore God's rule, the one who would break the curse, the one who would end the exile, that son would be revealed in the unlikeliest place. Verse 1, in Zebulun and Naphtali, in the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Galilee. I mean, Galilee, the, the most insignificant, inconsequential, unimportant place, the backwater Galilee, that's where this sun will be revealed. That's where the light will shine. And so therefore, when Matthew tells us that Jesus began his ministry in Galilee, when he tells us that Jesus proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in Galilee, when he tells us that Jesus drove out demons and healed the sick in Galilee, and when he points us to Isaiah chapter 9, what he's really doing is he's saying that Jesus is this child who was born. Jesus is that son who was given. Jesus is the response to the exile. Jesus marks the end of the exile and the restoration of God's blessings. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the prince of peace. This is what Matthew has been saying all along. Jesus, that promised son of David, the son who restores God's rule and reverses God's curse, who ends the exile. That's who Jesus is. And that is what Jesus has come to do. But Matthew, returning to our passage, 
not only tells us these things and tells us through the Old Testament, but he illustrates for us. He gives us an image. He gives us a picture. He describes, he illuminates what this restoration would look like. And we see it there in verse 23 to 25. Have a look at that with me. Verses 23 to 25. What does this restoration look like? What does it look like for God to bless his people? What is it like for him to reverse the exile? What is it that Jesus is doing in Galilee? Verse 23, he was teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what it looks like to shine the light in the darkness. He's teaching people. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God, and he's healing the sick. Now, I think here that there is a danger. That there is a danger that we think of these two basic activities as separate. That they're sort of two different things that Jesus is doing. He's dividing his time, right? In the day... He's preaching and teaching, and at night, he's an awesome healer. There's different things. But actually, I think Matthew's telling us this is, this is all part of one big package. This is, this is a demonstration of everything that, that Christ has come to do. So that when he's preaching and teaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, He's demonstrating what that looks like by healing people and by casting out demons and curing the sick. This, this thing is an illustration of the, of the gospel that he is proclaiming. And the reason I think that is we, we, need to, we need to just look again very carefully at verse 23. See, there we see that Jesus was healing every disease and every affliction among the nations. Now, if we, if we double-click those words, right, the, the words disease and affliction, we find that they are loaded with biblical meaning. They, they, they are pregnant with meaning. They, they mean something. And what it means, I think, is this, that when we look at Deuteronomy, and when the people were just about to enter the land, God warned them solemnly. He said to them, if you violate my covenant, if you break faith with me, if you are disobedient and reject me and rebel against me, then I will impose upon you every sickness and every affliction that I visited upon the land of Egypt. All of the curses that you witnessed upon their sin and idolatry, they will be visited upon you if you reject me. And when we get to Isaiah, we know that that time has come. The people have rejected God. They have rebelled against him. Uh, they have an incurable sickness of heart that is sin. And so God visits upon them all of the curses that he had promised. And so then when we see here in Matthew... That Jesus is going around the nation and he's healing those with every disease and with every affliction and he's driving out demons. What he's doing 
is he is taking away the curses that God had imposed for Israel's idolatry, rebellion, and sin. Jesus is taking away the curse of the exile. His presence, his ministry, his healing is demonstrating concretely that God is reversing the exile, taking away his curse, and now granting his blessing. But if we look more closely at Isaiah, we look more closely at sickness and disease and affliction, we see those words, those ideas again in one critical place. We see it in Isaiah 53, the song of the suffering servant. Now that song, we we ought to know, it's a song about one man who saves all of the people of Israel. And the way he does it is this. It says that, that he was crushed for our iniquities. He was pierced for our transgressions. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Right? There is a transaction that's going on. This one man is taking upon himself all of the curses, all of the affliction, all of the wrath that the nation deserves. And he is bearing it upon himself so that the nation might be healed. In that chapter, the language of sickness and affliction is used once again as an image of sin and judgment. And we see that suffering servant as the one who bears sickness because he is bearing the consequence and the penalty of sin. And so when we look at Jesus, and when we see him healing the sick and driving out affliction and driving out demons, what we are seeing is that a ministry based upon the fact that later in Matthew's gospel, he will take all of the curses of the people and bear them upon himself when he goes to the cross. That he will lay upon himself all of the punishment for our sin so that he might heal us and cure us of that deeper sickness, that sickness of our sinful and rebellious heart. This here is a proclamation of the good news, that Jesus has come to heal the sick. And we know, therefore, that as we trust in him and trust in his cross and trust that he has borne our penalty in our place, that through his wounds we are truly healed. Well, brothers and sisters, this is what Jesus has come to do. This is who Jesus is. Now, finally, in verses 17 to 22, we will look at what Jesus demands of us, his call upon us to follow him. Have a look at that, verses 17 to 22. Now, verse 17 is is the content of Jesus' proclamation, right? What does he say? He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? Repent. Repent is an absolute 
change in attitude, behavior, characteristics, motivations, desires, thoughts, and intentions. It's an absolute 180-degree turn. And it's necessary for following Jesus, and it's necessary for inheriting the kingdom of God. That's what Paul told us in our New Testament reading. Do not be deceived. For the sexually immoral, the impure, the covetous, and the idolaters shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul tells us again that repentance looks like turning away from from one aspect and, and, and embracing a new. The thief is no longer to steal, but he is to work so that he may have something to give. Uh, we are no longer to lie to one another, but we are to speak the truth, each to his neighbor. But I think that here, Matthew has a bit more in mind than, than just changing our behavior and our characteristics, although that is extremely important. I think here he's talking about the, the direction of our life, what it is that we're living for, what we're driving towards, what is our ambition. And he demonstrates it with these two parallel stories, right? They're, they're basically the same thing said twice. So have a look down. You've got these two brothers or two sets of brothers. Verse 18, what do we learn? That Jesus saw two brothers, Simon and Andrew. Uh, verse 21, Jesus saw two other brothers, James and John. Uh, we learn that both brothers were, were fishermen. We see in verse 18 that Andrew and Simon were casting a net into the sea. We see in verse 21 that James and John were in the boat with their father, mending their nets. In both accounts, what happens? In verse 19, Jesus calls them and he says, follow me. And in verse 21, Jesus called James and John and presumably called them to follow him. Everything is parallel. Now, what's the key point here? I think the key point is right at the end, in verse 20 and then in verse 22. What was the response? Verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed Jesus. Verse 22, is it the same? Yes, it is. Immediately they left the boat and their father, and followed Jesus. That is, that the call of Jesus here is an absolute, uncompromising, immediate call. It demands a response. Such so when we look in the Old Testament and, and we see Elijah, the great prophet, and, and Elisha, and, and Elijah calls him and says, come and follow me, Elisha is able to say to him, well, let me go and say bye to my parents first. And Elijah says, fine. But with Jesus, that's not possible. Jesus takes an absolute priority over your parents, over your children, over your brothers and sisters and your spouse, over your job, over your career, over everything else. Jesus takes the priority because of who he is, what he's come to do. It cannot be put off. 
It can't be delayed. It can't be a 50-50 or a 60-40 or an 80-20 relationship where you say, I'll follow Jesus most of the time, but this area of my life I'm going to keep to myself. You can't compartmentalize. You, you can't have sections of your life. This is my family. This is my job. These are my hobbies. And this is Jesus. No. The demand of Jesus is over all aspects. Because he owns you. He has bought you out of the domain of sin and darkness. Therefore, when he calls and says, follow behind me, our response is to follow behind him. There is nothing more important that we do than to follow Jesus. And as Jesus would say in four chapters later, no, ten chapters later, that to follow him is to take up our cross and to follow him. We follow Jesus in the path of suffering because in him we inherit eternal life and God's blessing. Jesus is more important than your job. He's more important than your family. Parents, Jesus is more important than your children's job. Let's follow him and call one another to follow him. And that leads to my very final point, and this will be very quick. The call to follow Jesus is inextricably linked with the call to create followers of Jesus. Right? We see that in verse 19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Right? You'll gather men and women. And right at the end of the gospel, what do we see? That Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make followers of me, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. Brothers and sisters, let's challenge ourselves. Are we as individuals and are we as a church engaged in that activity? Do we prize and value what Jesus prizes and values? Are we following Jesus in the way he commands us to follow him? Are his priorities our priorities? Or are we seeking to follow Jesus or to pretend that we're following Jesus in all sorts of other Christian ways without ever really engaging in the primary mission of making disciples of every nation? Sisters and brothers, this is not an option. And it's not something we should be coerced into doing either. This is a glorious thing. This is what God is doing in this world. This is the light that has shone in the darkness of sin. This is the Son of God himself who has come down and has borne the consequence of our sin. It is a glorious gospel that we have to proclaim. It is a wonderful light that we have to shine amongst everyone in KL. It is a wonderful thing that God is doing and that he, he desires to see done through us. Brothers and sisters, because of the majesty of who Jesus is, because of the wonder of what he has done, let us be followers of Jesus 
and call upon everyone to follow him too. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you that in your great mercy towards us in our sin, you sent forth your Son that he might bear our affliction, our shame, our guilt, and our punishment in the cross. And that through the cross that we might be, uh, we might receive your blessing and the hope of eternal life and the certain knowledge that we are forgiven. A grant we pray that we will grow in our knowledge of Christ and him crucified and that we would seek to follow him without compromise. And we pray that we will be those who proclaim him and call others to follow him. And we ask this for your namesake. Amen.